Thanks for being here with us on the Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson as we come now to Canto 11 of Dante's Inferno. Along with Canto 6, it's the shortest canto in the Inferno. And, like Canto 2, there's almost no action, just a discussion between Dante and Virgil. Let's see how it shapes up. Dante and Virgil have left behind the tomb containing the materialists whom we saw in the last canto, and have now come to the edge of this circle of heretics, close to the pit that goes down, down, to the bottom of hell, the centre of the earth. <laughs> but phew, the stench coming up from below is overpowering, and the two of them shrink back behind the propped-up lid of a nearby tomb, a lid with an inscription. I contain Pope Anastasius, whom Photinus lured away from the right path. Dante the poet does not spend any more time on what this reference signifies, but we'll speak a little more about it later on. Look, Virgil says, we'd better take some time out and wait here until we've become acclimatized to that awful smell, so that when we go down there we'll be able to do something other than just hold our noses as we proceed. I'm sure you'll find a useful way for us to spend this waiting time, Dante says. You've guessed what I'm thinking, Virgil replies, and he goes on to spend fifty-one lines describing the layout of the lands below them that they're about to enter. We've described some of this already in passing through earlier cantos, but let's go through it again. Here's what Virgil describes. Below them are three circles like the ones they've passed through, only, given the shape of hell as a funnel, only each circle getting smaller as they go down. The sins found in these circles are all sins of malice, that is, sins committed with the intent to harm someone else. First, there's the circle of violence, which is divided into three rings. Violence to other people, violence to oneself, and violence to God. This doesn't mean just direct physical violence, but also violence to the property of others, or to one's own property, or to God's property, which is nature, which includes abuses of the body, and also usury, making money out of money. The next two circles are devoted to fraud. First is fraud simple directed to people who would have no reason to trust you except insofar as they tend generally to trust other people. This category is divided into ten divisions. The second, fraud complex, is directed at people with whom you have a special relationship and who should trust you, people like your family members or your guests or your compatriots or, or, or people to whom you've sworn allegiance. We might call this treachery. Dante takes it all in, but he wants to know about the circles they've already seen. How do they fit into this scheme? Why aren't they kept inside this city of Dis? Oh, Virgil replies, you not usually this stupid, or is your mind just wandering? Don't you remember that Aristotle said that incontinence is a lesser offence than malice? Oh, oh, yes, of course, now I see, Dante says. It's actually a pleasure to ask these questions, so that I can have the double pleasure of having you resolve them. But before we go further, what did you mean when you said that usury is considered violence against God? 
Virgil takes a long way around in answering this, basically explaining that nature comes from God and it is our task in life to work with nature to produce the things we need to survive and prosper. We grow food, we make things, we produce art based on some aspect of nature, and we earn money from that work. The usurer, however, makes money not from nature or from his own skills, but just from money, which is nothing in itself, only a means of exchange. This is an abuse of nature, God's property. But time is up, it's getting late, and they must move on, over to the spot where they will have to climb down to the next circle, waiting for them below. And here the canto ends. The only action in this canto is the quick recoil away from the stench rising up from lower hell. Then Dante and Virgil sit, or perhaps stand together, talking, until Virgil rouses himself to get going. And here's the pattern of the canto. First there's the short mention of Pope Athanasius, then Virgil's extended explanation of the sins of malice, violence, and fraud, then Dante's question about incontinence and Virgil's answer, followed by Dante's question about usury and Virgil's answer, and the brief coda about time pressing. It, it, it's almost like a lecture followed by a question and answer session. Well, we'll talk more about this in a minute. First, let's look at the reference to Pope Athanasius II, a reference so brief that one might easily pass over it without noticing. I, I think I've passed over it in most previous readings, but I've noticed a few things here this time round. First of all, the reference to Athanasius is ambiguous. Did Photinus lead Athanasius astray, or, or did Athanasius lead Photinus astray? It can work either way in the grammar of the line. It's possible that Dante was mistaken and meant the Emperor Athanasius, not the Pope of that name, and, and which Photinus is being referred to. There seem to be two possible historical figures. Well, at the, at the moment, I'm opting for Photinus, the Bishop of Sirmium, who misled Pope Athanasius, because this Photinus actually has a heresy named after him. Photinianism, <laughs> Photinianism, and after all, we're here in the circle of heretics. Photinianism, like many heresies in the early church, was concerned with the nature of Jesus. Was he divine or not? And this heresy promoted the doctrine that Jesus was not born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, but was the natural issue of Joseph and Mary. Now, now I must admit that from this point on, I think I'm on my own. I don't think I've found anyone else who has come up with the following way of looking at this issue. In saying that Mary became pregnant by the agency of the Holy Spirit, the Orthodox doctrine, the Church is saying that the Spirit entered into her and produced divine fruit in the person of Jesus. We're not going to get into a discussion of whether this was literally true or not. More important for us right now is what we might call the mythic or symbolic sense here. The Spirit enters into each of us. We call this inspiration. Spirit, a breath. Inspiration, a breathing in. Inspiration, 
thus can be seen in any moment in which we are suddenly possessed by some good thought, a good perception, good feeling, that expands us in what we might call a divine way, that is, in a way contrary to the movement of the ego. Okay? Now, if the Photinians denied that Jesus was born this way and say that it was just a natural cause and effect procreation of Joseph and Mary, sperm entering egg, they are symbolically denying the action of inspiration. It's all just human agency. The materialist heretics in the previous canto denied that the soul lives after death. The Photinians here may be denying that there is anything beyond the natural world, no spiritual world, just the man impregnating the woman, a, a kind of fatalism, a world with no direction. All right, I'm taking this to an extreme, of course, and it's dangerous to do this, but I'm not insisting on it, just proposing it as a, as a way of looking at what's going on in this canto. Now, see where it might lead us. We are, according to this heresy, on our own, just living in a world determined by natural cause and effect, without the inner spiritual guidance to help us on our way. Now contrast this to the way Virgil is acting in this canto as guidance to help Dante. Divine guidance, in fact, since he's been sent directly from heaven to guide and teach Dante the way to get back on the right path. Maybe Dante the poet feels he has to remind us once again of Virgil's special credentials here, just before he inspires or impregnates the character Dante with the lessons presented in the rest of this canto. <laughs> Can you go along with me with this interpretation? Or maybe just a little bit? I've not seen any other explanation of why Dante should have inserted Athanasius into the poem at this point. And so the rest of the canto? Is it going to be Photinian, just a matter-of-fact lecture and question-and-answer period between Virgil and Dante? Or will there be some inspiration? Yes, for Dante, but also, of course, for us. I, I pose that question. I, I don't think it's up to me to answer it. All right, we may want to start by asking why the poet has given us this map of hell now, almost one-third of the way into the journey. He could have had Virgil explain this early on, or Virgil could just explain each bit as they move through it. But Dante the poet places the map here for some reason. And in Dante, everything has a reason. Everything fits into a larger pattern. All right, on the literal level of the story, Dante and Virgil just need to pause and acclimatize themselves to the terrible stink coming from down below. That makes sense, and it emphasizes for us the way the malicious sins can create a physical repulsion in us. That's the literal reason. Let's look for other reasons as well. The earlier circles emphasized Dante's wonder, his sense of being lost in this place, and his learning how to respond and how not to respond to the souls he encounters and to their torments. Now it's time for a shift in his encounters. 
Virgil says his explanation will be useful so that when they get to these malicious places, Dante will be able to focus on what he's witnessing without having to have everything explained to him at each stage. And it allows the narrative to move more swiftly, presenting the drama itself without a lot of explanatory interruptions. Stopping at this point also provides one more reminder for Dante and for us of the radical difference between, on the one hand, the sins of excess, which might result in some harm to others, think, for instance, of Francesca's husband, or to Paolo's wife, but these sins do not deliberately aim to harm others, they just overindulge the ego. Between this and, on the other hand, the sins of malice, which do deliberately aim at hurting others. This is an important distinction, and we have had the transitional ferry ride over the Stygian marsh, and the encounter at the gate of the city of Dis, and now this resting place, to emphasize that we are entering now on a different world altogether, a world that is out to harm us, not merely seduce us, a much more dangerous place if we drop our guard. And of course, this world does not exist just inside the poem we're reading, but it's out there in the world we live in every day, as we well know. Like Dante, we're being directed first to understand the general moral or psychological pattern, and then to observe how it works out in specific instances and to guard ourselves. One of the things that Virgil's explanation does is to shift the moral framework of the Inferno from Christian to classical ethics. The region of incontinence moved through some of the traditional seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, avarice, anger, and perhaps also sloth. We might expect the rest of the journey to focus on the two remaining sins, envy and pride. But in fact, almost all of the damned souls in the Inferno, wherever they are, exhibit envy and pride in one form or another. Moving to the classical category of sins allows Dante to expand his scheme and, incidentally, to present it in a way that shows much more clearly how these sins destroy social cohesion, the sense of community. He thus draws upon the writings of Aristotle, Cicero, and others, to provide him with his three main categories, incontinence, violence, and malice. We've seen incontinence. Next will come violence with its three different rings, and then fraud simple with its ten ditches, and finally and deepest, fraud complex or treachery with its four regions frozen in ice. There's a little point that might need further explanation here. Under violence to people or their possessions, possessions being seen as projections of the person's identity, Virgil mentions theft. But he mentions theft again as one of the subdivisions of fraud simple. Distinguishing between these two kinds of theft will, I think, help also to show the essential difference between violence and fraud. Violent theft would be something like a mugging or highway robbery, if such a thing is practiced very much these days or invading a conquered region and looting its valuables. These things are out in the open, and accomplished merely by brute force. Fraudulent theft, however, is sneaky. It is breaking and entering in the dead of night, or picking someone's pocket as they walk down the street, or cheating someone, perhaps through things like phony insurance policies. 
You can feel here that, though both thefts take our property, the fraudulent theft leaves us feeling a lot worse deep inside, and it destroys our trust in other people. This lack of trust is fatal to community. And finally, let's end our time with Canto Eleven by noticing the developing relationship between Virgil and Dante. This is a time when the two of them can pause and spend time together. Virgil is the teacher, Dante is the student, and a very willing and grateful student. <laughs> Just the kind of person every teacher most enjoys. Virgil, though, seems to get impatient with Dante when he asks if Dante is just being stupid when he wants to know why the incontinent sinners are not found inside the gates of Dis, or maybe his mind is just wandering. But I'm not sure what Virgil's tone is here. He could be an impatient master, telling off a bad student, or... He could be teasing Dante for not being quicker, and in teasing him, helping him to keep his mind sharp. And we shouldn't pass over the moment when Virgil tells Dante, you've guessed what I'm thinking. In the previous canto, Virgil had guessed what Dante was thinking. Now Dante is able to guess what Virgil is thinking. They're growing closer together. The student is developing well. Now come the harder lessons as they move on down to the circle of violence. See you there next time.